0: It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the
1: conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit vaxtalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who are perpetually pleased about the state of public health or yeah. perpetually perplexed, maybe even.
2: <laughs> a lot of P's in one <laughs> sentence.
1: That's right. My name is it's like Karen a, it's Ernst. Like a federal loan. There you go. The PPP for people but who wear PPE. Please. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines.
2: And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstar. I'm a pediatrician here at Blink Jones Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa.
1: And we are talking today with one of my favorite collaborators in the world, uh, Devin Berghart, who is the director over at the Institute for Research in Education and Education in Human Rights, org. They're a great organization that's done a lot of work combating white supremacists and far-right, dangerous, violent organizations for lots of decades, actually. And um, when they started noticing those intersecting with the anti-vaccine world. They um, started researching the anti-vaccine world. They have a new report out that we're going to talk to him about. And I think you'll find it really illuminating um, and definitely want to read the whole thing in depth. So that is what we're doing today. What do you think, Nathan? Are, is it going to be good?
2: It's going to be good. And it really is amazing to have watched this happen in real time, you and I having watched this. and predicting this like years and years ago before the pandemic saying oh we're starting to see some really interesting ally ships here uh, in the anti-vaccine world and then this is exactly how it is now going down and it's just watching the ship sink as we as we as we kind of ride on it Uh, Um, I just
1: realized, by the way, for our listeners at home who will never see this with their eyes, uh, that you are wearing some sort of like Yoda Harry Potter robe. Karen,
2: I am dressed as (laughs) old crusty man Luke Skywalker from uh, The End of Force Awakens and most of The Last Jedi. Thank you very much. I've grown out my facial hair for this purpose uh and if you find me on twitter you will be able to see that outfit in its full glory so find me on twitter at PedsGeekMD, and don't listen to karen
1: <laughs> i really thought it was like harry potter with a little yoda guy okay so to be fair the the
2: the robe that i have on over is gray and i did buy it actually as originally as a gandalf robe so Aha! i can understand why you are why well, you would think that.
1: There we go. Okay. Um, before we start, let's do a couple of things that we've seen around the web. Um, you may be listening to this after ACIP has or has not made their recommendation about five to 11-year-old vaccines for COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going to plow right into mine because it's related. Um, there is a wonderful article that I am going to put in the show notes Um written by a pediatrician out of Kansas City called The Lies That They Will Tell You or The Lies That You'll Hear. Um, and it sort of predicts, I think probably accurately, some of the misinformation that you're going to encounter about COVID vaccines and kids, including is it going to make your kids infertile? Spoiler alert, no. Um, all sorts of scary stories that you are hear to just sort of get you prepared for what's going to come the anti-vaxxers are fairly predictable uh but also to help you prepare other people just say hey just so you know you're gonna hear scary stuff and just to spoil the conclusion for you the vaccine doesn't cause um infertility or doesn't cause your child to grow a tail so uh it's a good article i'm putting in the show notes please read it did you see it nathan
2: yeah, I it did. It's really fantastic. And actually, I might as well just talk about my around the web because it basically fits into this, which is I'm going to um, promote my own material, which is uh, actually a op-ed that I had the opportunity to write for the uh, Des Moines Register, which in Iowa are our, our big papers. So I had a column on last Sunday, as of this recording, that... Uh, breaks down the reasons why pediatricians are enthusiastic about giving this vaccine um, and addresses some of those concerns. It doesn't in an in an opinion column, I don't have as much room as as a like a blog post to break down everything, but addresses information about the myocarditis concern that some parents might have, addresses questions about does it matter if you got your flu shot at a certain time, et cetera, like that. So that has called uh, let me click over. That is called, and, and Karen will put it in the show notes. Uh, they gave it a, a decently long title. Uh, Pediatrician and Iowa Immunizes Chair. Reasons Plenty for kids to get a COVID-19 vaccine, which I really enjoyed that title because it got Iowa Immunizes in the headline. I really appreciate that. I didn't ask for that. Um, and I kind of want to mention, too, that it nicely dovetails with the New York Times article written by our American Academy of Pediatrics president, uh, Dr. Lee Savio-Beers, who wrote, uh, Young Kids Should Get the COVID Vaccine, Here's Why. Uh, and it's actually, I promise you, there was absolutely no coordination on this, but reading that article was very similar in structure and um, the way that they, the way that certain things are addressed in mind. So I'm very flattered by that, That I have similar, you know, great minds think alike, I would say. So. That was uh, those are two other articles I think that everybody should give a read to if you're thinking about or have any concerns at all about immunizing kids ages five to 11 when it becomes available which as of this recording is likely to be next week this time next week or earlier so I am hopeful and we're getting all revved up and excited to be able to protect kids against uh, this disease. I think that, uh, I mean, I could get on a soapbox for another 20 minutes and talk about the reasons why, yes, it is very important for kids to be immunized against COVID. Um, and I, I don't know that we want to take all that time today. Maybe we'll talk about it next time when it's actually approved.
1: Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up your article actually, because I think it's really important. Um, let me ask you a question as a pediatrician related to that do you think it's people are going to need to be a little bit patient at first trying to get into their doctors and whatnot to get their kids vaccinated
2: they might be um i do not know enough even at this point about exactly how distribution is going to go down i do not know what kind of locations besides pediatrician pediatric clinics are going to have the vaccine available i don't know if your drugstore, your your um cvs or your walgreens is going to choose to administer to kids in that age or if they're going to rely on doctors clinics to do all of that work or public health or what so a lot of that i don't know so yes i absolutely think there is that possibility mostly based on not knowing how distribution is going to happen and how everyone is going to be able to get their shots. And our clinics, when they, if if a clinic gets their shot, gets shots in stock, are they going to give only to their patients? Or are they going to be able to give to other people's patients, you know, who want to come in if it's not available at the Walgreens, you know? So that's going to be tricky. I think access is going to be an issue for some families. And that might then lead to demand in certain areas that, uh, exceeds the ability of places to give it so i it's hard to predict uh at this point
1: yeah i think that's i mean just the fact that you're not sure about it sort of lets me know that parents shouldn't expect on monday of next week to just walk into their peds clinic and get their kids a shot um I i
2: actually feel fairly confident that at our clinic that would probably be the case. Like when we get them, we'll probably be able to provide pretty quickly for our patients, but the question will be, how much can we provide for, you know, if there is a need to provide for people outside, kids outside of our clinic, we want, we're talking about like, how can we fill that gap? And, but then the question is, do, do we have enough supply? How is it gonna be distributed? How are we gonna be able to staff? So that's gonna, I think, be a tricky landscape across across states and across the country
1: yeah i just i hope people can have some understanding with their their front desk folks at their clinics and you know there's still things that you can do to protect your kids until they're able to get vaccinated you can still keep masking um keep avoiding large public crowds um if you're doing things for holidays and uh you know you got to bring your kids you Mm -hmm. know ask ask people to test ask people to come with a negative test result um and
2: make sure that they're vaccinated as well yeah because that's one of the things i feel like i have to keep repeating it is so commonly kind of said and accepted that uh especially you know anti will say well this vaccine doesn't prevent transmission well you're kind of using some loose terms there. It prevents cases of transmission. It prevents, it reduces the chance that anybody, that somebody will in fact spread to somebody else. That's been documented even with the Delta variant. Uh, yes, it reduces transmission. Is is it preventing, you know, are we preventing 100% of transmission? No, we're not. So. Yeah, the combination of those safety measures plus making sure everyone is vaccinated is the way to go. until everybody can be vaccinated.
1: Okay. Well, you know, we could have a whole episode on this, and maybe we should. (laughs) I think um, it's just important for folks to know that there's definitely going to be a heightened um, sense of fear being spread about this vaccine because as much as people hate vaccines – I shouldn't say people. As much as anti-vaxxers hate vaccines, they really really hate vaccinating kids. uh, Oh, yeah. That that will set them off. Get ready. It is going to be a bumpy ride. But on the other end of this break, we're going to talk about Facebook and COVID denialism with Devin Burghardt. We are joined now by Devin Burghardt, a friend of mine and a really amazing uh, researcher at the Institute for Research and Education on Human Rights. And we're talking today not just because Devin's been doing a lot of really in-depth work on sort of the cross-section between the far right and anti-vaccine activism, but also because um, I-R-E-H-R has a new report out about Facebook and COVID denial. Um, but before we get to that, I kind of want to introduce people to the work you do at the Institute uh, for Research and Education on Human Rights and sort of what, how, that, how that institute got started and what kind of extremism you've generally been battling through the decades of work you've done.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to get to speak with all of you and to get to introduce a little bit about the work we do at the Institute. IREHR was founded back in 1983 um, by a number of people, including Leonard Zeskin, you know, who's a MacArthur Genius Grant winner and has literally written the book on the rise of white nationalism from the margins to the mainstream. you haven't read it, his book's called Blood and Politics. It's an amazing look at the trajectory over the last 50 years of the path of white nationalism. And so IREHR has been one of the, you know, kind of a smaller behind-the-scenes organization that's done a lot of research and organizing amongst the various facets of the myriad of threats to civil and human rights and democracy that we've faced over the years. For me, myself, I started... Really getting engaged in doing work to counter the far right back when I was like 13 or 14 when a guy by the name of Robert Matthews, a guy who would go on to found a neo-Nazi terror organization called The Order, came to my hometown. Um, ever since then, I've been doing work in one capacity or another to try to counter the far right. Professionally, I've been doing it since the early 90s, whether it be tracking uh, white power skinheads or militia groups or um, other organizations that pose a threat to civil rights and democracy. We really focus on doing detailed research and analysis amongst those threats to kind of let people know both what they're seeing on the ground in their communities and what they can expect coming up so that they're prepared for the new threats, not just always fighting the previous battles that they've had to engage in and around their communities.
2: So your new report is on COVID denialism and Facebook. So before we dive into those details, what do you think is the biggest takeaway from the research that you've done?
0: I think there are a couple really important takeaways. Uh, number one is that there is a massive presence of far-right COVID- denial groups on the platform. We documented 17,32 of them in the report with almost 2.5 million members around the country. And these are groups that are dedicated to, you know, pushing back against vaccines against mask mandates, against every effort virtually to uh, try to curtail the spread of the pandemic. And so that's a really important thing, right? The fact that there are this large number of activists who are using the platform to organize rallies, uh, demonstrations, and events that end up threatening public health officials, teachers, um school administrators, school board members, et cetera. That's really one thing. Uh, but the other thing we found that was really disturbing was that um, Facebook is the epicenter for a lot of this organizing activity. Well certainly other platforms have their share of COVID denial activity, um, be it you know, TikTok videos or Instagram influencers who are promoting anti-vax uh, propaganda or the latest, you know, nonsense cure-all for COVID-19, the epicenter for organizing activity for these groups that have formed to protest COVID health restrictions has been occurring on Facebook, and that Facebook has a long and recurring problem with this theme, uh, one that we're definitely concerned about.
1: Your report is laid out Sort of brilliantly. But it begins with this really difficult story about this 14 year old student who was radicalized on Facebook itself. And um, she's radicalized into um, COVID denialism. And there were, her school was actually locked down because of her radicalization. So, my question to you is this radicalization is really a cross section of all of today's culture wars, and it sort of intersects and becomes this big infectious blob. What do you think would surprise the average person about that story itself?
0: Well, I think there are a couple of things that are really shocking and depressing about that story. Number one, I think, is the the age of the student and how she got involved. Right? She's a 14 year old kid who was struggling going through the pandemic. Um, you know, she got some initial attention because she was doing some really positive things to you find her way through the difficult times by starting up, you know, a community garden and encouraging kids to do things like that. Um, but in the midst of that. By engaging on the platform continually, she was quickly drawn into the more um, dark end of the platform and was immediately uh, engaging with more hardcore COVID deniers. And within a year, she'd gone from someone who was just struggling with depression to someone who is now calling far-right uh, street fighters like the Proud Boys her friends. Um One of the really important lessons in Facebook and COVID denial that we discovered was that the platform has radically sped up the conveyor belt of radicalization. So people might come into this uh, being concerned or skeptical about vaccines or about um, the pandemic or just curious about information, but in a record time, They're able to quickly become radicalized to now they're talking about engaging in violent conflicts or even civil war. Um, That process, as we've tracked it over the years, used to take decades, sometimes years. Now it's taking months or even days. Uh, One of the revelations that's come out of the recent leaks of Facebook uh, internal data is a study in which they created a um, new account, which had some simple, basic information on it, um, suggesting that they were conservative and Christian. Um, They found that within two days after doing nothing else with that with that account that it was being fed a slew of information of conspiracy theories and heading down a really dark rabbit hole. Um, That's one of the concerns for us is how quickly um, the algorithms that Facebook uses to try to pump information to us can speed up this radicalization process. And given that we know now that there are over 2.5 million people exposed to this, it means that there's going to be a lot of work needed on the back end to try to decouple all of those folks from the challenges that were facing
2: now. Looking at more of the anti-vaccine misinformation, whether it's COVID vaccine misinformation or in particular, kind of, I'd like to hear about kind of broader anti-vaccine misinformation. How significant is Facebook as a platform for anti-vaxxers in general?
0: Oh, Facebook is huge. Uh, it's become a way for them to launder all of the latest um, propaganda and misinformation that that the anti-vaxxers are created, even though some of them have been removed from the platform, because they've already dug in and established a base of supporters. Now you have several hundred thousand individuals who are hooked in to the kind of anti-vaccine side of COVID denial, now feeding out that information individually that they're getting from outside sources. So, you know, they may be seeing the latest anti-vaxxer video on Rumble or on TikTok or on another platform, and then they're bringing it back into the platform surreptitiously um, and feeding it back into their friends and their own internal networks. Now the problem is multiplied to where it was, you know, that, A dozen or so individuals that were responsible for the largest amount of misinformation initially, now it's being multiplied significantly because you've allowed, uh, you know, a network of individuals and organizations to fester on the platform.
1: Right. That's, it's really scary. Um, It's honestly like scary is the exact word for how it feels. It, you know, when I was, reading the report, I kept thinking back to when Nathan and I first crossed paths on Facebook. We met on Facebook about a decade ago. And at that time being anti-vaccine really was centered on health concerns, but now there's a shift and, uh, it's taken a few years to shift, but it's decidedly less about health concerns and really more, you know, what I call freedom talk. Um, So how is it dangerous to have this anti-vaccine activism shifting from just health misinformation to now sort of this culture war space?
0: Well, I think that's, you know, the biggest challenge, right, is that it's the first thing is that it's bringing in new constituencies into the far right one of the biggest things we've noticed over the course of the pandemic, um, is the increase in the number of women who are now involved in the far right because of the, you know, the anti-vaccine to far right pipeline that we're seeing develop thanks to Facebook, right? So if you look at a number of these organizations that have have now become the more militant end of this platform, like, um, Ammon Bundy's People's Rights Organization, you know, a group that started on Facebook, developed last year to around 22,000 members, a majority of its leaders, its leading activists were women. That's a that's a, a shocking development for those of us who track this movement, you know, during the 80s, during the 90s in the militia movement. 90% 90 percent were men 95 uh, percent of the leaders were men even during the Tea Party era you know the membership was 66 percent men 33 percent women as far as we could track now today it's nearly even and amongst groups like the militant people's rights organization which has talked about engaging in armed conflict to protect you know the so-called freedoms of the individuals engaged in this stuff you know they have a, a, a membership which is nearly uh, nearly half Women, so that's a real big change that's happened. I think as a result, in part because of the um, shift in topics, you know, that appeal to women and that are traditionally um, roles that women have in the home. You know, be it around health and schooling, um, those kind of issues. Um, but what's happened is that you know, while people may have entered into these spaces because of health concerns, uh, because of uh concerns about the production of the vaccine or whatever, now because of their exposure to conspiracy theories, which demonize individuals and organizations um and create a worldview that means that they they are facing you know an endemic threat. Um, many of those are feeling the need to take more and more extreme actions. So we see the level of violence increasing. We see their exposure to ideas um, that lead them to a position that think that violence um, and even you know armed conflict are things that are justifiable given. The conspiracy worldview that's been constructed for them by far right actors. Um, So, you know, we see this transformation happening both amongst individuals and organizationally, that uh, more and more organizations are taking a more uh, far right path than they did before. And, you know, that I think is definitely a cause for concern. Um, It also means that there is the potential for them to exist in this space doing kind of far right activism long after the pandemic is over. So this is a problem that, you know, for those of us who are concerned about civil and human rights know that it's not going to go away when this pandemic ends, that there are far more people radicalized now because of this. And it means that uh, our communities are going to be living with the brunt of this long after the pandemic uh,
2: So I think we've established that this misinformation, disinformation culture, propagated by social media, and focusing here on Facebook, is is a huge and fundamental problem. So, what do we have? What what do you see as any possible solutions? What on a systemic level, on an individual level, what is going to make a difference?
0: Well, you know, we lay out a couple of uh, you know different proposals for different. Individuals and organizations in the report, um, you know, at a base level, in the first and foremost thing is to get vaccinated and wear a mask. Right, take those things seriously. Let's beat the pandemic um, before this has a chance to metastasize further. That's number one for everybody. Um, you know, for for Facebook, you know, we have written to them and suggested continually that they follow their terms of service and act on these on these. Groups that have formed on their platform, uh, we're happy to provide that list of all seventeen hundred and thirty-two, as we do in the report, and we hope that they'll take action and remove them from the platform and no longer allow them to use it to organize the kind of events that are threatening public health officials. You know, caught, you know, leading to the invasion of hospitals, the shutdown of vaccination sites, and so many other problems. Um, so that's the first thing is we hope that faith. Facebook will take action on their own. Um, If they don't, we have, you know, actions for policymakers that are also listed in the report. Um, That includes, you know, more internal investigations into what's going on 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 the platform. You know, the recent revelations of the leaks uh, inside Facebook are a great start. But I think we have a lot of questions still that remain, you know, particularly around Facebook and their role in trying to stave off the pandemic. They've made a lot of really wonderful statements about the actions that they've taken. But clearly, uh, we're still dealing with a pretty serious, pretty deep problem on the platform. And we hope that uh, some congressional hearings will get to the bottom of that. We also think that if they fail to do that, that there needs to be some additional actions taken to rein in the power and the spread that they have and their ability to push out this kind of disinformation and organized groups that are promoting the kind of violent conflicts that we're seeing in in so many communities around the country. And then, you know, we also encourage the continued congressional action to stave off the impacts of living in, under this pandemic situation that we are, be it the continuation of, uh, you know, the um, eviction moratorium to um, other efforts to um, stave off the economic and social impacts that we're feeling under the pandemic until we finally get through it. And then for human rights organizations and individuals, there are a couple of things we also encourage people to do. Number one, it's to pay close attention to this stuff. And if you see activity occurring in your community, so if you see you know, a group of Activists protesting at a school board meeting. If you see activity at your county council, if you hear about local protests, you know, protesting outside on a on a street corner or above an overpass, those kind of things, make note of it, document it, and send it to organizations like ours, so we can have a better sense of how deep and widespread this activity is. Um, that gives us th- that level of documentation allows us to better understand the threat that we're dealing with. Um, I think it also then allows us to have communities mobilize and speak out in opposition to the work that they're, that far right activists are doing on the ground, and speak up in support of doctors and nurses and pharmacists and teachers and others who are on the front lines of trying to beat this pandemic. That I think is really important that there be that human rights groups be more active in speaking out and standing up for those on the front lines during this pandemic who are, who are helping us to try to finally once and for all defeat this. Those are the kind of things we're encouraging human rights groups and individuals to do to mobilize and help us finally get through this pandemic together to unite, face this fear, and finally push back the uh, these uh, organizations out of the mainstream and back into the margins.
1: That's I mean, the, the report, I have to say, we're obviously going to link it in the show notes, but it really details a number of very concrete actions that can happen. Has your report been seen by anybody in Congress? Do you know?
0: Yeah, we've you know, we've had some conversations with. uh uh, Congresswoman Jayapal's office and, uh, Congressman Cleaver's office and, you know, some of the other congressional folks, but we want to get into the hands of as many as we can, because, uh, you know, we think it's in a, you know, it is one of many important issues that we're facing today. And I think that if we were able to, you know, Tackle this head-on; it would make the jobs of so many folks on the ground a little bit easier. You know, it's hard enough already. the The long-term impact of this and the ramifications are going to be long-lasting in terms of the wear and tear that's putting on our healthcare system and on you know everyone. Um, but if we don't do this, we're going to be continue We're going to continue to face this problem, uh, and we're not going to be able to get to a point where we can finally say we've beaten
2: this. So we kind of have an idea of what's going on now from your report. So what is coming up on the horizon as far as disinformation, social media, the internet, etc.?
0: You know, that's a great question. Um, you know, we've watched the uh, COVID denial movement change pretty rapidly. You know, Heraclitus once said, you can't step twice in the same stream. And that's certainly true for the path of COVID denial, that it has changed and adapted to the varying circumstances um, that are taking place on the ground. So what started as kind of protests about reopening our businesses and and not locking down, moved into a space where they were taking on masks and vaccines. Now we're seeing a more multidimensional approach, right? That they're um, trying to bring all of these things Together and combine them into a much larger narrative um, to try and be prepared for what's coming ahead. Um, Looking for more spaces to move anti vaccine and anti mask messages uh, and looking for new targets, right? They're always looking for um, the latest ways to find. Avenues to get their message in front of people, right? So, um, Facebook is clearly and you know the space in which they're organizing, but you know, pay attention to the other platforms, uh, to the other ways in which they're getting out information to people, right? Whether it be uh, you know more targeting of young people, which is certainly something we're seeing as they're starting to talk about getting vaccines into into younger folks, um, so that they're going to try to find avenues to do that, whether it be through uh, Targeting TikTok or Discord servers, or you know other venues in which kids are conversing about this stuff, um, or it be um, you know continuing to push back in local school boards, and you prepare for an electoral fight. Right, that the battles that we see today in terms of engaging around the uh, initial fights around mandates and around masks and around vaccines are a precursor to trying to get candidates and individuals elected who support those ideas and can maintain those in spaces like county councils, in School boards, in you know local legislatures, those are the kind of fights that that are coming ahead. And while we don't specifically pay attention to electoral stuff, um, we know that that's one of the areas in which they're looking for in terms of looking ahead to 2022 and reshaping the political landscape so that they can have an impact not only socially and kind of at the grassroots level, but impact the country. Fundamentally, at an electoral level as well.
1: I'm so glad you brought up the electoral thing because I think Nathan and I, in particular, uh, look at our <laughs> political climate right now. Uh, and you know, right now, I've got you know, do, do I want the anti-vaccine doctor to run for governor or the My Pillow guy? I don't know. How Ish. about neither? <laughs> mm. Uh-huh. Mm. <laughs> How about neither? But before we leave, I really want people to have. A sense of urgency about how existential the threat of this broad insurrectionist denialism is to our democracy to our health to our well being so what is it that we can say or do to convince people that this is a big existential threat on our hands? I think
0: the biggest thing to say is that the foundation for the January 6th insurrection was laid by the COVID denial insurrection of the previous months, right? It was COVID denialists who led the the armed insurrection at state capitals in Michigan and in Washington and in in places around the country. It was a test run for a further armed insurrection. And we saw that play out on January 6th. Right now, COVID denial insurrection is laying the foundations for a larger insurrection that not only impacts public health, but also erodes democracy. Many of the activists involved in COVID denial are now moving into a space where they're fundamentally denying the legitimacy of elections and our governmental institutions and are looking forward to a day when they can overturn or overthrow um, all of the American institutions that we hold so dear. Um, and given that they built up a base on Facebook alone, of nearly 2.5 million people. That's orders of magnitude larger than I've ever seen in the course of doing this work for over 30 years. Um, That's a really big challenge that's going to be with us for a while. And it means we've got to do things both to shore up our public health institutions, but also make sure that we defend democracy and human rights um, for the long term, because this is a battle that's not going away anytime soon. And if anyone wants to get involved, if they're interested in what we're doing, please you know, email us, contact us you know, on Twitter or whatever format you want, and uh, we'll find a way to plug you in because this is a challenge that uh, we're going to need er- all hands on deck to try to deal with to help pr- protect the health of American democracy for the long term.
1: And can you give us your website address and your Twitter handle?
0: Sure. Um, You can reach us at I-R-E-H-R dot O-R-G and Twitter is at I-R-E-H-R or you can reach me at on Twitter at D-B-U-R-G-H-A-R-T.
1: Well, Devin, um, I love talking to you, even though it's always uh, fills me with a sense of dread and horror. Yeah. Um, It's sort of, but it's very appropriate for Halloween. So, so (laughs) (laughs) um, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: You know, if I had a dollar for every time I heard something like that, I would never have to fundraise again.
1: I mean, you should be like, you know, I I will come to your event and scare you (laughs) for money. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and I don't, you know, I don't want to scare people. It is, you know, we, we want to give people the actual facts, right? I mean, know there's mm-hmm. a lot of concern out there. There's a lot of misapprehension about what's going on. So we want to give people, you know, the actual figures, right? Uh, while it is 2.5 million people, the vast majority of the American public are on our side. We just haven't mobilized in the same way or organized in on the same platforms. Uh, it just means we got more work to do. Uh, and I think that truth will win out, and that the you know, we we have a lot of work to do, but you know, it's certainly work worth doing, and that will make a difference in the long term. You know, one of our longtime inspirations and one of our mentors here at the institute was the late CT Vivian. CT was Dr. King's right hand man, and uh, you know, an amazing civil rights leader in his own right. Um, you know, and he often counseled us that you know that this is a fight that you have to engage in, right? That it is that it is fundamental in terms of the building blocks of American democracy uh, and helping us live out who and what we want to be as a nation in the 21st century. So I think there are a lot of positive things and a lot of you know amazing connections and transformations that happen in these spaces and these moments. I got a chance to meet you all, for instance. So those are really powerful things that I think um, are things that we can take away from the positives in terms of doing this stuff. And in the end, you know, we'll get the democracy that we that we fight for. Absolutely.
1: And thank you to everyone at home for listening. Um, make sure you read the full report. There's really so much more in it than we had time to cover until then my name is karen ernst i am the executive director of voices for vaccines you can find us at our updated brand new sparkly (laughs) fabulous website voicesforvaccines.org
2: and i'm dr nathan boonstra you can find me uh mostly on twitter you can find me at pedsgeekmd on twitter and then you can also uh look for my blog which is pedsgeekmd which is not actually updated all that often so just find me on twitter
1: or in the des moines register
2: or in the des Moines register or your local paper if you're uh-huh. in des moines
1: all right fare thee well everyone take care to learn more visit faxtalk.org